Alexi Lecoq started Datadog in 2010 after living through the internet boom and bust cycle of the late 90s and early 2000s. In 2010, cloud was just starting to become popular. There was a gap in the market for infrastructure monitoring tools, which Alexi helped fill with the first version of Datadog. Since 2010, the number of different cloud infrastructure products has proliferated. There were new databases, queuing systems, virtualization and containerization tools. Web 2.0 took off, and thousands of new internet businesses got started. Many of these businesses used Datadog to monitor their increasingly wide range of infrastructure configurations, and Datadog began to scale. On today's show, Alexi tells the story of how Datadog grew from its first product into a variety of tools, infrastructure monitoring, logging, and application performance monitoring. Monitoring is a unique challenge. There's a ton of data, the data is latency sensitive, and the data is operationally important. These engineering constraints provide for a great conversation. Alexi is the CTO of Datadog, and we talked about cloud providers, building a business, infrastructure, and how to scale engineering management. Full disclosure, Datadog is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Alexi Lecoq is the CTO and founder of Datadog. Alexi, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. You started Datadog in 2010, and that was after some experience going through the late 90s and the early 2000s internet. How did your early engineering experiences inform what you built with Datadog? So in around 2003, 2004, I joined uh, with my co-founder, actually, we joined a SaaS company. So it's the early days of SaaS, I guess, in education. So something that was kind of a new feel for me. But what that exposes to is the early days of SaaS, um, how to deliver you know, software as a service to an audience that was you know, decidedly not necessarily very technical, aka teachers in K-12 throughout the country. And so that was formative because really we were trying to figure out, well, how does one run, how does one write, how does one design, how does one run software at a reasonable scale because we were serving you know, a lot of schools across the country. And so that was formative and I think figuring out well, what are the tools available? Back then, I think we we still had this classical, you know, developer operations divide where there was kind of a release management and you'd throw something over the, the proverbial wall. And it was not working very well. And we're sort of grappling with how do we make it better? That, I think, was... You know, some of the background that informed what data would become when we started in 2010 and what it is now. Were you exposed to any of the insanity of the dot-com boom and bust, or did your career get started after that that dot-com boom and bust? I got started before that, but I'm sort of more of a latecomer. So I decided I was working at IBM at the time in 97 through about 2000 just upstate New York. And at some point I was living in New York City and I was, you know, there was all these startups in the city. I was like, wow, that, 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 should, that must be cool. Let me let me try. And so I, of course, picked sort of the, the tail end of the boom in 2000 to join and, and I lived through and I survived the, the crash. So and that was really also some, some good lessons learned there. But it was a fun ride uh, while it lasted. And then, and then it was a little bit of a trough, the trough of despair for a while. And then finally, sort of caught back up. Yeah, there's a lot of people, myself included to some degree, 
degree who are looking at this cryptocurrency ICO boom and sort of wondering, you know, should we be hopping on the bandwagon and trying to make our riches? Like looking back, uh, you know, I it seems like maybe this is sort of like the 1999, 2000 era where you've got all these people that sort of jumped on at the end and, and are just going to have to ride out the bust if they want to stay stay on. Does it look similar to you? I'll say a little bit. Cryptocurrencies is something I've I haven't really delved deep into. So you know, it's, this is really the opinion of somebody who's not terribly informed. But seeing the wild swing, you know, in in value, is not unlike what we saw, you know, early two thousand one, when yeah, valuation of companies with no product, nothing to show soared through the sky and it came crashing really hard. There's obviously a parallel. That doesn't mean that that's the, the outcome we'll see. I think that's, uh, if, if I knew what the answer would be, I'd probably be uh, you know somewhere on the beach or retired. So back in 2010, when you started the company, what kinds of monitoring and logging issues were you encountering? Back in 2010, uh, we had a uh, on the monitoring side. It was a very fractured environment, and by that I mean this is largely for for the vast majority of the population pre AWS. I remember still going to physical data centers, opening up boxes of servers, racking them, kind of so doing the the whole nine yards to get to get the service up and running. And the environment was very fractured. By that I mean. We were running a, an environment that was probably typical of uh, a lot of companies back then. It's kind of, you know, Oracle databases, big SANs, network gear, servers, and so on. And kind of each part of the stack had its own monitoring tool. And that made it really difficult when you were trying to troubleshoot something that obviously started at the application, but could really find its root cause anywhere from storage, network, I don't know, DNS, application, OS. You had to go to jump from one tool to another tool to another tool. They made, made it extremely tedious and inefficient. And I think that as a result, it was really hard to pinpoint what the, what the issues. In addition to that, there was also a fractured in terms of who had access to you know to monitoring tools and so you'd have you know I, again I think back then in a more traditional uh, sort of pre devops environment the ops crew had a plethora probably too many tools at, at its disposal while developers had nothing really had you know limited access maybe there was an agios instance you know that was out there but even interacting with it was was particularly difficult and so that's the landscape I think we we found our ourselves in both as practitioners initially and then when we started it out as, as a way as sort of seeing what the problem was and trying to get out of it. So that was a great answer. It, we're talking 2010. This was near the beginning of this ever-increasing sprawl of back-end tools. And it also sounds like the tooling was overly weighted towards the operational side versus the developer side. And this was back when there was a clearer partition between these developer and operations teams today at many companies those roles are merging or overlapping or becoming more harmonious back then there was a, a clearer divide this was also i believe 2010 was two years after aws was really taking off and there was really just this high volume of tools and disparate data sources how did that affect the early strategy for the company that's right. I think 2010, I remember, I think, going in 2010 and 
graphite was, I think this was the sort of first tool really emerging in a sort of post, probably post Nagios world on the open source side. And I think, you know, on the one hand, for sure, it informed, I think, what we, how we thought about time series processing, what kind of interface people would, would want to look at. We took at some point different, we made some different choices, for instance, from a, you know, tagging and metric naming perspective, querying perspective. But, but generally speaking, I think we were seeing the emergence of probably both developers and ops crews getting more sophisticated about what they need to see to understand what's going on. So I think I want to say we started probably early, about the same time or just a year after Graphite uh, took off. And then there was there, then there were a lot more tools, you know, c- coming down the pipe, you know, be it Sensum and f- further down the Influx, Prometheus and so on. What we saw, though, and this is maybe tying it back to uh, the earlier comment about the fraction environment was there's, so first of all, as a sort of as a, as a new company with not much back then to offer, we're not going to approach people and say, hey, we have this great new tool, rip what do you have out and then we'll come in and then you'll see the world will be much better. I think we we wanted to have a much more sort of gentle approach by saying, look, there's there's valuable data in a Nagios, in a Graphite, and in, in a number of tools that you use right now that collect the data that maybe you struggle to to be able to use because it's not joined, it's in disparate environments. Um, let us bring everything together in sort of one central repository where you can you can then look at everything in context. And and I think that led us coexist with, and, and to, to this day still uh, coexists peacefully with a number of tools. What was the earliest software architecture for Datadog? I'm probably too ashamed to say, but initially we started with something extremely simple with, so storing the time series in a SQL database. I think we didn't make the very first uh, beginner's mistake of storing initial data points as rows in the database, but it was it was just one you know one mistake beyond that. Or so it was very simple. It ran on on a laptop. It was you know, Postgres, a, a bunch of Python sort of st- back then. Not even now it's streaming processes, a Cassandra data store. So something really really simple. The goal was really to prove we were not concerned about scale at that point. We we're just concerned: does this company have a future? Does the product have a future? Does it answer a problem that people have. And that's why we went really for the quickest way out the door. And then gradually, as as usage started to pick up, then we you know we introduced Redis. I think that must be probably the, your your zero or your one. And then we introduced Kafka at some point. And then we started replacing pieces and pieces with by now custom made stuff that sort of works at the scale we're at. Okay, so you mentioned this architecture with that started out, I believe you're just storing monitoring data in, you said, a, a MySQL database? It was a Postgres database. Post, Postgres database. So why is that problematic? From a volume and from a sort of read-write usage patterns perspective, it just doesn't scale really well. The the SQL databases where, particularly on in transactional mode, are really good at doing sort of very targeted reads and writes, frequent updates to the data, which a time series database doesn't have that need at all. The, the past never really changes. I mean, you can allow for some exceptions, but fundamentally, this is a write once, read many times pattern. And so for that, the traditional... You know, SQL databases don't work particularly well. You can get a little bit more mileage if you if you use, for instance, a columnar database, because obviously the way time series are queried is never one point 
in isolation of any other point in time, you usually look at a span for a given a given time series. So that makes the sort of general purpose OLTP engine not particularly well suited. That being said, this is really about the sort of the, the st- storage backend, which I know people like TimescaleDB, I think they've, they've kept the, the Postgres front end and then sort of replaced the backend with their own, you know, their own stuff to support time series. So it's definitely possible. Back then, I think with the time we had, it was really the choice was what are the best tools available which we can use now to prove that the product is something valuable in, in, in the problem is trying to solve. And we had early on limited time to sort of tinker and, you know, re- rebuild the engine. We we're just you know, too worried about surviving as a startup. Mm-hmm. I guess this is a kind of problem that pushed the development of these time series databases, because now we've got a number of them in the market. And the type of problem that we're describing, monitoring data, this append-only data type that is going to be probably queried in a, in a columnar fashion. Is, is that accurate? Like, and also, I guess, in the you know, pre-cloud days, it was harder to have the budget to store all of this data for many companies. I mean, was this just an unsolved problem, this type of database, or was it only solved in a closed-source fashion? You know, why were there not time series databases that were widely accessible you know, prior to 2010 or to whenever, I, I guess Influx was started in like 2013 or 2014, somewhere around then. So I think that there has existed in, in, in specific niches, time series database. I think finance is, is one I can think of where prior to 2010, there was, this is, this is the bread and butter of, of sort of finance, uh, the treatment of, of time series database, though there. Typically, you know, sometimes either their time scale is different, either super fine granularity if we're talking about uh, high frequency trading or coarser granularity when we're talking about sort of ticks for pricing and, and, and exchanges. So I think that technology, because finance as a, I think, as an industry isn't, was not necessarily as connected as, as our own and didn't have the open source ethos necessarily from the start, those solutions stayed there. And there was sort of super sort of very focused, very performance solutions that, that just never crossed, uh, you know, crossed the chasm and remain adopted by a, but just by a handful. For me, you could argue you could maybe trace it back to development of mobile, maybe, because that's really driving SaaS and delivery over wireless, if you will. And that in itself is driving, obviously, you know, sort of large backend distributed infrastructures, which themselves become too complex to understand by just, you know, looking at the, the architecture diagram to, to predict how they're, they're going to behave in production. And that in itself causes us to want to generate data capture the data and then, you know, sort of be able to to process it, analyze it so we can understand, well, how is my infrastructure actually doing? It's not something that I can reason about just, you know, from pen and paper. Whereas if you thought about, I think if you think about a, a more traditional sort of three-tier infrastructure where, look, back then you had a couple of databases server, you know, tens 
maybe you know the high tens, maybe low hundreds of application servers. It's something that that all do the same thing. It's a lot more sort of synchronous processing, or there was a very separate batch world. Um, it was something that you could reason on, I think, with less data to be able to predict or to sort of look back on on particular performance behavior and say, well, it was slow because you know ABC. I think now the just the distributed architectures we're we're seeing is it's making it a lot harder to do that. If you don't have ton of data to look at to make hypotheses about certain things or discard hypotheses that don't play out. So now we've talked a little bit about the storage in the early days of all that monitoring data that people were sending to you. There's a whole lot more to that story where you know to get data onto the servers at your monitoring platform, the customer has to do one of two things. They can send it over HTTP or they can have an agent running on their host machine, a Datadog agent, and that agent can communicate the monitoring data to Datadog's servers. Can you describe the communication pattern between the host and the Datadog servers? How has that evolved over time? Was it the same sort of pattern back then as it is today? Fundamentally, at some level, it has not necessarily evolved. The, the pattern remains the either the agent or if it's you know custom code sending to our API pushes code to us. We never you know reach back in as it were, and that's really for for security reasons. So we have sort of some we and and more importantly our customers have peace of mind about look I'm just I'm in control of of what data really leaves. It's not it's never data that's asking me for data, and so that definitely hasn't changed. The transport really hasn't changed either. We still use HTTPS because it's we know it's going to traverse pretty much everything, any proxy, any firewall at this point. The format that we use internally for you know the pay- how we encode the payloads, that's changed. That's been become more sophisticated with the different applications. The, the frequency at which we collect data, how we format it, that's changed. But but that's these are sort of not where I'd say the core the value resides. It's it's something where as you can expect, you know this we compress the data. It's it's uh, f- sometimes some pieces are, are still sort of outputting JSON. I think the earliest pieces are still still like that. Some pieces are protobufed. I mean, it really depends. But fundamentally, it's the the agent that sits on on the customer's infrastructure just will push data at the at a frequent interval. You know, it could be every every second, every five, every ten seconds, every twenty seconds, depending on on what application we're looking at. When I think of a monitoring SaaS platform that's aggregating all this monitoring data from lots of different companies, I think of a lot of different bursty workloads where you could end up with, at the tails, you could end up with some serious load, and at at the other tails, you could end up with situations where people are not monitoring that much data. So the scale-up and scale-down story seems like it could be interesting. What did the early load balancing infrastructure look like, and how has that changed over time? Yeah, that's that's actually, I would say, a problem that has become easier to deal with over time, but just simply 
you know, by virtue of, of statistics. For sure, in the early days when we had just a handful of customers, a burst of one would basically require us to over-provision our, our intake capacity. And so the name of the game in monitoring is really controlling for latency and having really predictable latency throughout the pipeline. Otherwise, you sort of throw your alerting engine off track and you have false positives, which is sort of the scourge of, of monitoring. And so in the early days, it was really about providing or, or uh, spinning up extra capacity to absorb extra load or bursty load. As the number of customers increases, you do have a a sort of a reversion to the mean in terms of while some of them may be bursting, others may be particularly quiet. And the burst also could happen towards the smaller customers or the mid-size or the larger ones. So overall, we're not so susceptible to burst, definitely now and even even a a couple of years ago. When we're talking about, this is about time series processing where you essentially emit you know, metrics. So the, the size of the data doesn't really fundamentally change if you're, you know, let's say if you're in a crisis mode, you, know, you as a customer is fighting an outage, you're generally speaking, sending potentially roughly the same amount of data. Where we see spikes is you're provisioning a lot more capacity at once that will typically register um, as, as a spike from your perspective, from our perspective, not anymore. In terms of log uh, absorbing logs, that's a different story, and that's something where, and it's it's a particularly difficult problem to solve where you're in sort of steady state, you emit a you know volume uh, x amount of logs uh, log lines or you know megabytes gigabytes per second, you're encountering a problem. Typically, uh, your volume starts to grow, and that's sort of when you need access to that data the most. When you have a problem, and steady state, usually you don't, you're not so pressed for answers, and that makes it a particular challenge for that product in our platform to think about how we absorb the extra capacity without overprovisioning you know, 10x uh, or, or 100x, then we start getting into having different sort of lanes of processing to be able to, you know, provide basic quality of service for latency in terms of how recent the data you're looking at is. As we said, this was in the early days of cloud. Did you have faith in the cloud enough to put Datadog's architecture on the cloud or were you in some colo, what was the hardware story there? The hardware story was was zero. I had enough faith in the cloud, and I think I have this taste in colos and sort of managing that whole part. That from the get go was let's you know let's go to the cloud. The the thinking was when we're really small is look we need to move fast. When you we have very very few customers, you know you're not pressed for needing to have uh, a ton of capacity you know at your disposal or necessarily even the fastest hardware. Back then, I remember comparing the kind of workloads that we can run on prem versus in AWS and it just in the cloud. And it it you know the cloud wasn't there. You could run decent workloads, but nothing really serious. It really pushed you towards heavily distributed architectures from the start because just the individual nodes weren't that powerful. Now that's obviously changed, but back then I think that that's also, I think, what informed a lot of the choices we made where 
look, at the end of the day, I think, is it easier to manage just one supercomputer that can do everything in, in one enclosure? You know, probably, as opposed to managing you know, 10,000 nodes that, that will interact and fail and be coupled in weird ways that you don't fully understand. The reality is there is no, none of that single supercomputer that exists. So you have to just sort of force down the distributed path, I think, naturally. So AWS, because there was really, that was our provider, forced us there naturally. And I think that's, you know, for, for the better, because that, that's, I'm sort of glad we went down that path. And over time, there's been the increase in virtualization technology, container technology. I'm, I'm curious both about how this affected your architectural strategy in, internally and how it affected customers, because I imagine the cardinality of virtual servers uh, increases the cardinality of data points that people are locking. Absolutely. And this, I would say, the first step, I think, was the first multiplier was was indeed going from uh, physical hardware to virtualization, where now you could effectively run you know, 10 to 50, 100 nodes per physical physical hardware. The containers sort of added an extra multiplier there. And and what we're seeing is is not only the, the count, the sheer count, which is, you know, adds up in, in terms of a uh, number of data points to process and so on, but also the speed at which things get, you know, spring into existence and then get recycled. And for VMs, if you think about it, cloud instances or, you know, VMware instances, we moved from a you know, three-year amortization cycle, depreciation cycle for physical hardware. So basically, your CFO was saying, well, this thing's going to run for three years, ideally, well, in, you know, uninterrupted, but we want to squeeze the most out of it to, you know, I can run an instance for a couple of days, a couple of hours, not a couple of seconds because startup costs are too high. So that already changed the game a little bit in terms of velocity. And then containers, then it's, it's you know, it's processes on the machine. So you definitely, we see a, in our customers, uh, them sort of recycling, you know, containers after a few seconds, after a few minutes, maybe a few hours, and then that's it. And so that's changed fundamentally how you have to, you know, deep down architect your your backend to support that kind of time series, the query system, but also how you name things. I think this is a transformation that's not necessarily very apparent, but beyond the sort of pets versus cattle uh, analogy, this is really... Back in the day, if you have you know 100, 200 physical servers, obviously you can name them and so on, but you can refer to them. Their name is enough to refer to them. In a cloud environment, and let alone in a containerized environment, the name is completely meaningless. Is you refer to things by the properties they have, you know. So you essentially ex- express your your what you're looking for in terms of a predicate. I want all the containers that run in this cloud provider that run this particular image and that are of this particular type and so on. It's a shift in how you think about it. But I think importantly, it's a shift in how the software to support that has to be built. And that's why we've seen this retooling of of all the sort of management layer from on-prem to the cloud and and sort of now to containers. It's because the old stuff just wasn't built with that in mind. So it, it just became really difficult to kind of shoehorn shoehorn that into into the new reality and that, that's why I, you know I think we're seeing this profound retooling and monitoring among other things but it's not the, the I think the only the only place where that happens 
What about internally? Obviously, this is something that you're not just having to re-architect your product for because all the customers are going in that direction, but it's something that as a technology company, you have an opportunity to leverage yourself. Right. So when I look at our growth from a, let's say, uh, from a volume of data perspective, it's been surprisingly predictable. And so that's, you know, in a sense, grateful for that. We haven't had, because I think we have this this agglomeration, because this SaaS is one instance, and you have very different behaviors of different customers that kind of cancel each other out and, and sort of gets you into a sort of ever-growing mean uh, that you can actually forecast with a fair amount of accuracy. Now, that being said, we've, of course, as we keep the train running, we've replaced parts, we've laid down tracks just in front of it, you know, if I use that analogy, which is really ripping out our own internal pieces when they couldn't scale, when they didn't make sense anymore. I think that what I mentioned about the, obviously, the, the SQL databases of the early days, that's long gone. We were using a sort of NoSQL for a while for, for time series storage, that's long gone as well. That some parts remain, obviously, things like Kafka, you know, I don't see necessarily a point now where that has to be replaced. This is really about sharding it uh, properly. Some other pieces remain about sort of storing blobs representing time series, uh, historical time series. There's also no point in, in replacing that. That scales nicely. But otherwise, containerizing, for instance, you know, that, that's something that we've been doing for some time and it's sort of continuing. You know, I can't say that we're, we're done in that journey. And I'd say customers have generally been and because we, we have enough of a swath of different customers, uh, we've seen sort of very early adoption of, for instance, Docker or or around the, the Docker 09 days, we already had customers um, using it and in production. There were a few, but they existed. So that's also for us, the, the beauty of SaaS is to be able to also understand what are customers using in terms of data store, runtime environment, how can we think about the scale at which they're running and so on and so forth? So we produce these anonymized data set that kind of let us also study, if you will, you know, how, for instance, we had a couple of container adoptions. So that came from anonymized data sets we extracted from our own backend. Do you see anything interesting that you can comment on? I mean, obviously, containers have taken off, but anything like, whoa, people are using Google BigQuery a lot or wow, AWS Lambda really is taking off even more than we anticipated. At this point, I mean, Lambda is definitely something that I had not fully anticipated in terms of the adoption. I think it still makes sense for uh, certain use cases, of course, you know, not all. I wouldn't necessarily want to build everything. You know, our own, for instance, backend would not make sense in Lambda because we're really streaming data. So the processes have to be running all the time. There's a, the data persistent data has got to be loaded in memory, essentially, I think, if, you, if, if I want to simplify it. So there's no point in, in starting a new context of execution and ripping it out and again and out and again and out. But there's number of cases where that makes total sense. I mean, when you were very sort of, I think, event-driven, maybe you're at the edge or you're event-driven, but these are not sort of continuous event being fired at you, it's certainly a lot easier to, to deal with than even to, you know, spin up the, the, the machinery you need to, to operate a, you know, a container fleet, for instance. And so that, that makes sense. The, I think containers is really still there's sort of a new trend that shows, you know, that it's here to stay. I think Lambda, I can't say that right now. I'm seeing that it's, look, this is, everybody's transitioning to it. I, you know, I, I, it's not true. It's simply not true. But we remain alert. And that's why 
I'm always super interested in these new ways of, of solving problems because that's our mission. I mean, as, as a company is, is monitoring. We're not container monitoring or cloud monitoring. It's, like it's monitoring your application and your, your application is there to serve your customers. You know, you're not monitoring application for the pleasure of monitoring or you know, just for the sake of it. We have to be super attuned to, you know, where things are going, where are we seeing traction and make sure that our own backend our own product really you know serves that otherwise we'll be just like the old guard at some point you're sort of innovated out of you know into oblivion by somebody who's more tuned to what's happening that volume of data that you're seeing over time that allows you to provision somewhat predictably how does that graph look is it just linearly increasing over time is there some slope or is it uh, exponential looking what does it look like? It's mostly geometric growth, so it's exponential, if you will. What makes it difficult, I think, and challenging and interesting for us is, as we add new products, the, the amount of data we receive per, per customer increases sort of faster. And, and when we release logs, for instance, that's when we start to see, wow, this is an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude more data coming our way. Now it goes through different pipelines and so on and so forth. But but that, and that, that's what internally we tell ourselves is we have to engineer our systems for 10x, 20x, relatively over a relatively short time horizon. There's no point in, in engineering for you know 100x or 1000x. I mean, there's a point, but it's particularly hard, and I think it's difficult and expensive. But we can't also be thinking, well, we'll just make it you know handle twice as much traffic, and we'll be set. Because if we do that, we'll be set for you know six months, nine months, and that's that. And, uh, so that that wouldn't make a lot of sense for us. You mentioned Kafka. And I can imagine Kafka being useful for slicing up the incoming data by topics of the companies that are sending you data and perhaps by the applications within those companies. Is that why Kafka is useful? Is it for building this hierarchical topical buffer of data so that you can process it in a more sane fashion? We use Kafka mostly for, I'd say, a couple of properties. The way we will inject data in Kafka will actually change if you think about the processing pipeline where you receive a payload that contains a snapshot of everything that happened, all the time series that existed, you know, between A and B on a particular host. And then you're trying to, you're having to pivot it into, instead of having a snapshot of a bunch of time series, you sort of take each time series and you, you sort of collate it with the points that existed before. Kafka is particularly uh, suited at, at that buffering. In terms of how we address the topics, it tends to be very granular because and it's really per, you know, it could be per metric, per customer, for instance, because we see customers have wildly different profiles in terms of how, how many time series they generate, for instance, or even a given customer may have a very different profile from time to time when they generate a lot more data and less data, depending on what it is that they're doing. What Kafka buys us, I think, fundamentally is sort of very predictable performance. And that's, to me, it's owing to it, the, the simplicity of the design, which, which is really a huge quality in my eyes. And it also, from a pattern perspective, 
allows us to have sort of loosely coupled components. And this is in, in comparison to if you think about, you know, let's say pipeline processing, ALA, Storm, or things like that, where you have a very sort of strong semantics that are encoded in the topology itself. If you use Kafka and a bunch of obviously consumer producer, you have a much more implicit, you know, topologies. The producer produced, they don't really care about, you know, who's, who's consuming or not. And sort of Kafka will also not prevent a producer to produce if no consumer is there. And that's been great for us uh, because it also allows us to have teams that build things at different at different time scales or they, they don't have the, the loose coupling that exists on a software perspective, I think that that gets reflected at the team level. So there's there's less synchronization that needs to happen between you know team A and team B. If there's a the produce team A produces, team B consumes, for sure they have to talk to each other to make sure this this compatibility, but that's about it. They can release at at different times as long as they re, uh, respect that basic contract. Have you built out a multi-cloud architecture where you've got some failover into multiple clouds? What's your multi-cloud story? So multi-cloud is something that it's actually for us born out of business necessity, not so much out of you know technical necessity. And by that, I mean, really what's been pushing multi-cloud for us has been privacy and data sovereignty you know, regulations, or at least uh, an environment where the people pay a lot more attention to them. Uh, and so, for instance, we have, you know, some capacity in Europe for, and that's relatively new, but that's the, the goal is to address European customers who want their data to reside in Europe, right? And, you know, for historically, we they have shipped that data over to, to the U.S., and that's obviously been fine. But we're starting to see, you know, a lot more demand for local data sovereignty, uh, if you will, locality of data uh, in the jurisdiction that that they feel comfortable with. In terms of multi-cloud, as in multiple providers, the need there is really, you know, it becomes more a a business need as in like, do you want to have just one vendor? Do you want to have multiple vendors? And and you see, I think, across the industry, you know, be it Netflix, a sort of traditional sort of trailblazer in, in AWS for AWS, you know, investing in other clouds, sort of we do the same. And this is really for us now now that clouds become okay, you know, public cloud our reality and something that business grapple with every day. Now you sort of revert back into, okay, I have, you know, multiple vendors that kind of offer the same thing, not quite, but how should I think about diversification from a risk perspective, you know, if one goes down and so on, but also from a pricing perspective, you know, so such that you can you can as a business extract the best you know the best cost possible from your providers so this conversation about infrastructure and technical engineering could go on for a very long time it's interesting to hear your trajectory i'd like to zoom out a little bit how has your approach to engineering management changed in the last seven or eight years it's changing i'll say it's changing it's changing i think interestingly enough I'd, i think my philosophy if you will i would trace that back to the years prior it's not like i think you know i i started the company and then engineering management you know came to me i think i just really observed was taught by a number of people leaders from the day I started working as an intern upstate New York, 
that's kind of showed me, you know, how, how to do the work that made me who I am, I guess, as a professional. So I think, I mean, obviously that there's been some sort of key or, or moments I can, I can think, think back to. And, you know, I think Netflix and its sort of culture deck, that was, I think, in our industry, a little bit of a sort of pivotal moment for a company thinking about how it defines itself. You know, I think Google's definitely uh, had a similar influence in terms of how they think about, you know, hiring process and the 20% time and so on. And, and of course, there's a lot of a gradation between what diverse companies out there have put out as this is our motto or this is our model and this is how we think about how we operate and the reality in which they operate. But still, I think that that's transformed a lot. I think though, you know, the things that haven't changed is, you know, everybody wants to do like their best work. I think, you know, regardless of which company they're in, you know, here at Datadog or somewhere else. And, and that's, I feel really grateful that to be in this industry at this time when there's so much interesting stuff to do, you know, so much freedom and autonomy, you know, compared to other industries, you know, my wife's an architect. It's a very, very different uh, vibe there. And so that's why I feel grateful really every day. So that's great. What about product development? Have you learned anything important about product development that stands out in the last seven years? Yes, undoubtedly. First thing I would say is, look, SaaS is great. It's unforgiving because you literally have to earn the you know, the business of your customers every single minute, hour, day, uh, week, if you will. The positive about that is you can be pretty introspective. You can really understand. You can ask the question, well, customer X, you know, are they adopting their product or not? If they're adopting, why do they res- what do they respond to? If they're not adopting, conversely, you know, what's going on? What did we miss? And this is something where, you know, compared to a sort of a shrink wrap, you know, I'll sell you a license, perpetual license, and I'll just collect the, you know, the support costs or the support, you know, send a support invoice once a year for the next 20 years. It's a very different dynamic. And this is something that helped or lets us and helps us basically instill that to every single, for instance, software engineer. It's like, look, we're, yes, we're building a product, but ultimately what we're selling is a service. It's not, a, we're not selling the product. The product actually remains ours, which is selling the service. And so that attention to, and this is not a paying lip service. It's like, look, it, it helps you stay honest. It's like, when you release something, is it working or not? Is it successful or not? Is this valuable or not? And then you're just, you know, you can look the sort of the reality squarely in the eyes and, and say yes or no. For me, the other big lesson is, Early on, you know, we got our first few customers. I started doing support because I actually enjoy that, you know, chatting with with customers. Hey, how's it going? You know, what's working? What's not working? You have these, this closeness. I think that's been great. And, you know, I've been a, a lot of, you know, intercom and so on have been super helpful in mediating that conversation in, in ways that, that make sense. When I came to supporting customers, I came with the, the mindset of you're calling you a cable company. And look, you're, you know, support is a dirty word. You don't want to have to deal with support. And so you come to that with that mindset, you're, you're wasting a huge opportunity, opportunity. Because what happens really is when somebody's interacting with you, even when they have an issue, it means they care. And so this is a very strong signal uh, that what you're doing, it may not be perfect. It definitely needs improvement, but they care enough. It's, it makes a difference in their lives 
that they want to spend, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes out of their busy lives to talk to you and say, here's what's working, here's what's not working. And so for me, the transformation was to see support not as a sort of traditional, oh, it's a cost center. Let's find the cheapest way we can, you can deliver support at an acceptable level to our customers. It turned into, this is a great opportunity to actually cl- close more business because we have, if you're in trial with Datadog and you encounter a problem, you're contacting us means, look, you care. And so chances are, there's a higher chance that you'll become a customer. And so what that means then is, if I'm a customer and I have a problem and I want a quick resolution, who should I talk to? What kind of profile should I to- talk to or put in touch with? And the answer is another of my peer. And that's how we thought about support, not as a you know sort of traditional cost center, but rather let's staff it with software engineers who want to solve problems and this it's a different you know mindset a slightly different mindset from the traditional sort of product builder who want to build things you know uh, over a longer time scale in this case it can be i want to solve problem but i want to see you know a bit more immediacy and i want to you know have the pleasure of interacting with you know with someone else which you know software engineering may or may not afford depending on how you go about it one of the hardest problems that i have seen companies encounter and i've encountered this myself trying to build things beyond the scope of a, of a podcast is that when you try to build a second product or you try to have something that's an expansion to your current product, the shift in focus away from the core competency can just destroy you. It can really erode your productivity. It can potentially disrupt your entire business and not disrupt in a good way, disrupt in a very bad way. You've expanded into a couple of additional products over the years, the uh, the APM work and the logging work. I think both of those were additional products that maybe you had in mind at the beginning, but you didn't necessarily have. I think the first core product was really infrastructure monitoring uh, did you learn anything valuable in the product expansion phases of the company? Absolutely. And you're right. When we started, we only had infrastructure monitoring. And it took us some time to, A, of course, realize that, hey, we need more or you know, pinpoint exactly where we need it. It's this sort of constant customer interaction to help us with we're realizing that. But And then we went at it in two different ways so far, I think, that have been reasonably successful. One is in building it internally, and the other one is building it to an acquisition. So none of them are easy. Both of them are involve some degree of anywhere between discomfort and pain. Internally, how we set out about it is we basically formed a new team to build. So this, in the case of APM, we formed a new team to build APM, and that was painful because we had you know productive people contributing to whatever it is that they're working on, and we say. We told them in a month from now, you'll be doing something completely different. So you have you know, more or less a month to figure out how to transition what you're doing out to other people. There'll be extra, you know, those other people will feel the load. It's not going to be fun. But we figured that's the only way internally to go about it is we have to peel off a number of people, form a new team, and then push and then kind of give them that sole focus. They should be focused on that. You should not be focused on necessarily that second effort. The way we've been, I think, fortunate enough that the core product has had enough momentum to keep us keep us busy. And so there was really, look, we can't do, we have to do A and B. We cannot say just B and let's forget about A because that's just wouldn't work. The second way we went about it was an acquisition. And there we spent a lot of time not only surveying 
you know, what the market was in terms of log management, but who it was, who was at the core of the companies, where we compatible, you know, from a, you know, just even individual chemistry perspective. And we thought hard about what's the right size we should bring uh, someone in, you know, somebody too small and they feel they're lost into Datadog. Somebody too big and then you can't really make it work because it's just a lot of, there's two cultures that are struggling to integrate with one another. But I think both of them require a ton of work and you're right. I mean, you, you, the reality is you have to do more things. It's just not, you can't just do one thing and then another thing. And I think for us, where we've been, you know, again, fortunate or lucky is we've seen momentum in, in all cases. So that you're sort of faced with, well, we have to, you know, we, yes, we have to make hard choices, but it has to, all three things have to work. So, you know, how, how do we go about that? Alexi Lecoq, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Wow.